Welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. I'm Jennifer Diane Ghostin, your host. Storytelling is just one of the best ways for adoptees to convey what has happened in their life from their perspective and a great way to open up to the adoption community. You, the listening audience, will have the opportunity through episodes in this podcast to learn, dissect, and grapple with some of the issues involving those of us separated from our family of origin. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation validation even that you are not alone in your experience wherever you are on the path of healing and or managing past traumatic events. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? I welcome my next guest, Dr. Liz DeBetta, who is an adoptee and interdisciplinary scholar, artist, activist, whose work is grounded in creativity and social justice. Using storytelling and narrative techniques, Liz invites others to create space for empathy and begin healing individual and collective trauma connected to race, gender, sexuality, disability, ethnicity, and other intersections of identity that are misunderstood or misrepresented in dominant culture. In this episode, we cover a handful of the extensive contributions Liz has made to the adoption community. She is a published author, and the title of her book is Adult Adoptees and Writing to Heal, Migrating Toward Wholeness, Arts, Creativities, and Learning Environments in Global Perspectives. Another of her most recent accomplishments is a collaborative effort with Rebecca Autumn Sansom, creator of the film Reckoning with the Primal Womb. Together, they are bringing Operation Fog Lift to Nashville, Tennessee. She shares what that project hopes to accomplish, which will include her one-woman play, Unmothered, spelled U-N hyphen capital M hyphen capital O for Othered. Liz is interested in performance-based poetry and narrative writing for healing and social change from a feminist perspective within the areas of adoption culture and reproductive justice as a way of disrupting dominant narratives and shifting paradigms for adoptees and first mothers. Her writing has been published on DearAdoption.com, SeveranceMag.com, in the journals Adoption and Culture, and Frontiers in the hashtag MeToo. Essays about why this happened, what it means, and how to make sure it never happens again. Allow me to introduce you to someone who searched and found her biological mother under a closed system, requested and received her original birth certificate once New Jersey changed its adoption laws, and she is happy to publicly share her relinquishment and adoption journey. Her birth happened two months earlier than expected and she credits her survival against the odds as a premature baby, is sufficient proof that she is meant to be here. Well, Dr. Liz DeBetta, I love your name. How are you doing today in Michigan? I am doing good enough today. (laughs) I borrow it from Dr. Joyce McGuire Paval because... She's told me, and I've heard her say, sometimes you don't want to get all into what's all going on, and simply saying good enough is still the truth. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I am happy to have this conversation with you today. There's so much I want to cover. I'd like to start with a project that you're working on with Rebecca Autumn Sansom called Operation Fog Lift that will be brought here to Nashville, where I am, and I'm just looking forward to this event. So you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we, I and we, Rebecca and I, are super excited about uh, this little brainchild of ours. I reached out to her several months back, and I was like, hey, you've got this great film. I've got this one-woman show. I really think we need to combine forces. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what you think about it, but, like, we need to talk. 
we got on a Zoom call and started talking about our, you know, different projects and how her film gives the documentary version of what my play does through poetry and narrative and movement. And I said, you know, I think there are really nice companion pieces and let's think about how we can do an event where we screen your film, people take a short break, then we do a performance of my one woman show followed by a talk back to give people a fully immersive experience with what it means to be an adopted person and grapple with this lifelong trauma of the primal wound, right? And and give people the experience of the documentary art form as well as um, live performance to really create some space for empathy and deep engagement and, and a follow-up conversation for folks to really start to think about the ways that dominant and, you know, the mainstream narratives in adoption overtake the truth of adoptee experiences. And so the more we talked about it, the more we realized, like, this is the thing we needed to do. And then it took a couple of months worth of conversations and then a really long brainstorming session to come up with what is now known as Operation Foglift, because we really wanted to capture what it is we're trying to do with our artistic processes. You know, we kind of thought through a lot of different things and we threw things back and forth and we were on Zoom for like two hours one day. And I was said, you know, you have the adoptee army, we have this adoptee army that's already in place. Like, how do we capitalize on that language and that sort of, you know, the imagery there of, of this like, supportive force of people that are with us on this journey, even though we're taking, you know, we're doing individual work, using our stories individually. It's really also a collective experience of, of storytelling. And so we eventually came to Operation Foglift because we realized that the thing we're both trying to do with each of our pieces of art is to help people come out of the fog. Right. And that's not just adopted people. It's also adoptive parents. It's in, in some cases, therapists and social workers and really the general public. I mean, there is just a pervasive fog that exists about what the experience of of adoption and being adopted is. And so we, we wanted to create something that spoke truthfully to our lived experiences, but helped other people to to really get a clear vision of what those experiences are and, and why we need to start talking about adoption and trauma and thinking differently about the systems that are in place. And so that's how we came to Operation Foglift. And now we're doing our first event in Nashville on August 5th and 6th. We are hoping that that's sort of the launching pad for us to take it around um, the United States and, you know, Canada and the UK, whoever wants to help us get wherever, we will bring it to you. Thank you for all of that. Yes, I love when you say this is to create empathy and deep engagement. I am so on board with that. And I have my ticket and I'm going with another adoptee who lives here in Nashville. And so that Saturday, the 5th, I will definitely be there. So I'll put everything in the show notes so that anyone that's interested can also get their ticket. Awesome. <laughs> So I know you're a writer, a writing coach, a performer, storyteller, healer guide, and a published author. Congratulations. Thank you. Yes, and the title of your book, Adult Adoptees and Writing to Heal, Migrating Toward Wholeness, Arts, Creativities, and Learning Environments in Global Perspectives. So, yeah, let's talk about completing that. Yeah, that, so that book I, is work that I, you know, in addition to so many other things is work that I am super proud of and really excited to finally have out in the world. It started a long time ago when I started writing poems at 14 years old because I had really big emotions and I didn't know what to do with them. And I had a really smart teacher and coach who knew that I was going through some stuff. I think he probably also knew that I was adopted. 
he suggested that I start writing poems and which I thought at the time I thought that was the dumbest thing ever because you know I was 14 and you know everything at 14 right (laughs) sure we did (laughs) yeah and I was like no I'm not gonna what do you mean poems I'm not gonna write poems that's like ridiculous and he one day invited me to his office and he (laughs) read me a poem that he had written and he told me the story about why he had written this poem and it affected me so profoundly that in that moment, I really had a paradigm shift. I, I just was like, oh, maybe this isn't so stupid. <laughs> and and so I got a, a flowered notebook, you know, the back cover is red and the front had some shiny flowers on it. And I started writing poems secretly. It was just my own secret thing. You know, and, and then that was the thing that sustained me for many years, just the, the being able to unburden myself on a page. And I wouldn't learn until many years later when I was working on my PhD that there's actually a whole field about writing and healing and specifically poetry as a therapeutic process, that we can use poetry as a healing modality. And I thought, wow, this is the thing I've been doing my whole life without knowing it. Cool. And so I got pretty deeply into studying people that were already doing that work and engaging with those ideas of like how writing can become a tool for healing. And that um, is ultimately what helped me develop my dissertation, which part of which is unmothered, but we'll talk about that uh, later, I'm sure. In the midst of working on, through my PhD program, I had the opportunity to go to UMass Amherst one summer to be a Rudd adoption scholar. Uh, they have a summer research institute for their adoption research program. And that experience connected me to an amazing community of adoption scholars who have been really supportive of me and my work. Because at the time, I was the only humanities scholar that had been through their summer research program. And I remember being, you know, in a room full of social scientists and like explaining to them, you know, why stories matter and why I did what I, why I do what I do and why, you know, why I'm using stories to uncover these, you know, deeper social issues and, and to create space for change and you know, shift dominant narratives, right, and change change the narrative ultimately. They all kind of were like, okay, that sounds really cool. But, you know, they're numbers people and stats people. And so it was an interesting couple of weeks, but that but what that experience did was it connected me to to this tremendous network and resource at the Rudd Institute. And so a couple of years ago, you know, COVID sort of messed everything up for a while and everything went online and things were, you know, shifted from, you know, in-person conferences to online conferences. And I had been slated to perform part of my one woman show at their in-person conference and then it got canceled and then they shifted it to an online year long series about adult adoptees. And they invited me to rethink what I wanted to present. And I said, you know, it would be really interesting to do some work with some adult adoptees, maybe have a writing group and see what comes out of that writing group and sort of put into practice the thing that I have been doing for myself and the thing that I have been doing in drips and drabs, but to really have some dedicated time to work with with a with a group of other adult adoptees um, and take them through a seven week process of writing and sharing in community. And so they were really interested in that idea. So that's what I did. I I put out a call for participants and I got an overwhelming response. And any folks that are listening who may have gotten on the waiting list, I'm I'm still working on figuring out ways to do more of that work. So stay tuned. I ended up with a group of 11 adult adoptees ranging in age from late 20s through their 60s. I intentionally chose domestic adoptees, domestic infant adoptees for this particular group simply because that's my experience and it seemed like a good starting place. We spent seven weeks together working through 
each Saturday a couple of hours of writing and talking and sharing and then reflecting. You know, there were reflection activities uh, that I gave them to do during the you know week when we were before we met again, because reflective writing is, is an important part of this process. And then we presented, we were the culminating presentation for this year-long conference on adult adoptees that was online. And we got to share a short video of some of the writing that the participants did. And then we had a round table with quite a large audience of people who really were engaged with what we were doing and learned a lot from it. And then the outgrowth of that, they say this whole big long story to get to the point, which is that that's where that sort of then became the impetus for the book because Jen Dolan, who's the program manager at Rudd said to me, you got to write a book. And I was like, <laughs> okay, yes, sure. No problem. Right. Let me write that, write that book. But then I, you know, one of my former professors from grad school reached out to me and said, Hey, I'm on the editorial board for, for Brill Publishers, and we have this series on arts and creativities, and we're looking for proposals for books about healing and creativity. Do you, do you think you have something? And I was like, let me think about that. And then I woke up the next morning, and I was like, duh, of course I do. <laughs> and so I wrote the proposal for adult adoptees inviting to heal. It got accepted. They were like, yes, this is great. We love this. We want to we wanna get this in the world. So what the book ended up being was, is, I should say is, because now it is, is published and it is a book, is part autoethnography, which is, you know, a research method. And it's just a fancy way of saying that it's my story coupled with embedded research to highlight a particular social issue in this case, in this case, adoption trauma and how we can use writing as a tool for healing and processing embodied trauma because because we know that trauma lives in the body and we need ways to move it out of our bodies. There's lots of, you know, people know Peter Levine's work and there's lots of somatic experiencing work that can help do this, but but writing is also one of the ways that we can help to migrate trauma. And so the book is partly me telling my story, the story that I told you at the beginning of this part of the conversation about my teacher suggesting I write poetry. And then what I did was I went back to some of my original poetry and I started to really analyze it and look at it from the lens of my experience now. And I thought, oh, there's so much here. And so part of the book is me using my own writing to show other people how they, how they can look at what they're writing, you know, what, what's coming up in their poems and stories in terms of images, repeated language, things like that, to understand the places where they still have some unresolved grief and some things to process, right? For example, if I'm constantly writing about ghosts or feeling empty, right, that gives me a clue about something I need to do some inner work about, right? Who are the ghosts and how do I kind of excavate them and give them some breathing space outside of myself or if I feel empty what is it that's making me feel empty and why do I keep writing about it right? I like that yeah and you're making me think about the poetry that I wrote years ago I was probably like mid-teen and I'm going to go back and and get them and read them yeah I'm glad you said that and I also yeah. believe it was Michelle Hinton that told me about being in your writing group Yes. Yeah, she spoke so highly of the group, and, and I get to have her as a guest on the show in the near future, so that had to be a powerful seven weeks. It really was. I mean, I am so, every time adoptees trust me with themselves and their stories, I am profoundly humbled and grateful, and like we know in our community, like the word grateful is really charged. But I use it really intentionally in this case because people that show up with me and, and, and for me and trust me to hold space for them is such a gift. And it's one of the things that really lights me up and brings me joy. It's, it's my purpose is to help people heal. 
And having that seven weeks with that group really galvanized that for me. It really, it really showed me that this is work that has meaning, that is helpful to people, and has really, you know, has really deep impact because it's a tool, right? It's it's something that you can use even if you don't have access to anything else. And I say this as a person who did not have appropriate mental health care to deal with any of my adoption issues until I was 40 years old. Yeah. And that's true. That's true for so many of us. And, and it's terrible. Yeah, that's a long time to wait, isn't it? It sure is. Before we get to Unmothered, uh, your one-woman show, I'd like you to share part of your relinquishment and adoption journey from wherever you wish to start. Is that okay? Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, so let's see. Hmm. Ah. I was uh, adopted at birth as far as I know. Yeah, that's the story that I've been told. I was born prematurely, and so I spent some time in the hospital uh, with some significant health issues, as you can imagine, a two-pound baby in 1977, pretty touch and go, not, you know, not the same advances in neonatal intensive care that we have these days. And I consider it a miracle that I'm here because I, I shouldn't have survived under the circumstances, and I did. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a thing that I have kind of always held on to in, you know, moments of kind of dark places. I remember like I survived for a reason. And so here I am. And what am I going to keep going? How am I going to keep going? What am I going to keep, keep doing? My adopted parents, ne you know, never kept, never kept it a secret. Uh, I have an older brother who's also adopted and we always knew it was, it was, you know, it was just, that was what was true for us. That like my parents couldn't have kids and they wanted kids. So they decided to adopt and that's how, you know, we were their kids. We talked about it, you know, as openly as we could, but, you know, that's, that's difficult when you don't have any information, you know? And so, like, after a time, uh, when I was about five, my mom actually got pregnant and had my younger brother, Frank, who has Down syndrome. And that really sort of shifted our family dynamic a lot because it was 1982 and just after deinstitutionalization, and he had a lot of needs, you know, and my parents, you know, had a lot of work to do to figure out what programs they could get him into in terms of early intervention and what services he needed. And, and of course, they didn't know anything about the trauma of maternal separation and that my brother and I, my other brother and I might have significant needs as well and you know in terms of our mental health and in terms of continuing to talk about adoption and it's like we just kind of stopped talking about adoption um and it just kind of became like not so hidden secret i guess is a good way to put it and i didn't think about it for a long time until you know as i said i was in my teens and started having really big feelings and everybody just thought i was depressed <laughs> you know it came to find out years later that that was partially true but a lot of it was you know my trauma responses that were showing up um, and then in my 20s i was in college and i kept like trying to have relationships with men and they never went well. And then I always pushed people away. And, but then I always felt shitty about it. You know, like I was doing something wrong and I could never, you know, I just couldn't figure that, that thing out. Like all my friends like had boyfriends and like everything was normal and I just didn't feel normal. I found out that I could get my non-identifying information at that point. And so I wrote to the, uh, to the, to the adoption agency, Ocean County Family and Children's Services in New Jersey. And I said, hey, you know, here's my situation. Or I think I made a phone call, actually. They said, okay, if you send us, you know, 50 bucks, we'll send you copies of whatever we have on file. I said, okay, cool. So I got that, you know, that little packet of paper and, you know, read it and tried to piece together something of my story and then realized very quickly, you know, this was what, 1997, I'm going to say, 97, 98. So like the internet was brand new baby stages. 
And so didn't have a lot of access to like finding information. And I, so I kind of said, all right, well, this isn't going to get me very far. I can't actually find anybody because they're not, you know, all the information is redacted. So I know something, but it was sort of hit a dead end and I put it away for a long time. And then kind of things came back up again when I was in my thirties and I tried again and also had a really hard time finding information. And so I put it away and forgot about it again until, uh, until I was in my late thirties and had been married and divorced. And then through a series of really unhealthy and toxic and terrible relationships with emotionally unavailable men. And I thought, okay, I feel like a hamster on a wheel and I got to do something to figure out why I can't move forward in my life. And so I pulled out that packet of paper again and looked at the list of suggested readings that I had ignored for like, you know, 20 years. (laughs) And it was like, oh, maybe I need to read some of this stuff. And so I started reading The Primal Wound and I started reading Being Adopted, The Lifelong Search for Self. And I was like, oh, (laughs) this is why. Right. It like, it like hit me in the face full force. I was like, oh, I'm not crazy. There's a reason. And so like I started to get this intellectual understanding of, of myself and fortunately ended up with a really amazing, meeting a really amazing man who is, you know, my life partner. And we've been together almost eight years now, but he was really supportive of me going on this healing journey and like figuring out like where I came from, because that was the thing, right? That was the thing that had been really the noise in the background for my whole life was like, who, who do I look like? Where do I come from? And so in 2017 or the end of 2016, he got me a DNA kit for Christmas. And then at the beginning of 20, you know, that just a couple, like a week later, I found out that New Jersey had changed the laws uh, to allow adult adoptees access or partial access at any rate to our records. And so I spit in the tube and sent it off. And then I filled out the application and sent it off to New Jersey to try to get a copy of my birth certificate. And ironically on my 40th birthday is when I got the copy of my birth certificate in the mail. (laughs) I remember opening it and like going, oh, like she's a real person. Like my first mom is a real person. Like that was the first time that I saw her name, that that like I could like concretely think about her. You know, she had always been this sort of nameless, faceless, like hazy image, right, in the background over the years. And so because, you know, and so I very, you know, Jeremy and I very quickly were able to find her online and, you know, kind of using our excellent research skills. Um, <laughs> because he's also an academic, we we were like, yep, we cross-matched and this is, yep, this has to be her. And so... Yeah, and so I reached out to her about 10 days later and and she got back in touch with me, you know, a couple of days after that and like saying how happy she was to hear from me that she had been waiting. And then we started, you know, we started talking uh, and so we've we've been in reunion now since 2017. And it's a slowly progressing thing, you know. I mean, I think a lot of people who have made contact with with first parents probably have a similar experience of being a fully grown adult and trying to like meet your mother your father you know the person who gave birth to you and like the reason you're on this earth and like try to have a relationship with that person without them having raised you but with with also them having knowledge of you right like that embodied knowledge and so it's this really interesting and complicated at times mm-hmm. dance right yeah. so that's yeah so that's a little bit of like that sort of timeline of of, the, of my story 
And a shout out to Jeremy. Isn't it the best to have a supportive partner? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, I I might get a little emotional, but yes, because he has been the best person for me. Right. Right. And has given me so much space to do the work that I need to do to heal and to sit with me when things are hard. Yes. You know, and to also like call me out when I do the things that are not healthy and I don't do them so much anymore, but like I used to, you know, lots of us dissociate, right? And we <laughs> shut down. And I used to shut down all the time because I I just couldn't, right. you know, I did not have the skills and he, you know, is incredible, an incredible human who is so expansive and compassionate to say to me, Hey Liz, you got to stay here with me. Like we're in this together right. and we're going to, it's, it's going to be okay. Um, and, and also, having him as a creative partner has been incredible because he's also a theater person and he has been a really integral part of um, helping Unmothered be what it is. Yes. Yeah. Well, I am so glad you have him in your life and so many adoptees who have been guests on this show have shared the importance, the value that they're partner has been through this like navigating adoption land and being adoptees and 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 I appreciate you being vulnerable and sharing what you just said because I'm sure a lot of adoptees can relate to like shutting down I know I certainly can yeah Yeah. so thank you for that and and I guess that leads us right into Unmothered I have not seen it and I just I can't wait to see it August 5th yeah, yeah, I can't wait for you to see it. I can't, I mean, I can't, everyone who's already gotten tickets and the people who are going to listen to this and now get tickets. Right. Um, I'm so excited to to bring this to, you know, a more adoptee-centric audience because it's it's really been a big part of my journey. So as I said earlier, I mothered started as part of my dissertation. I, I went to a really incredible program at Union Institute and University that is very focused on social justice work and allowed me to combine my background as a performer. It's my first degree, my bachelor's degree is in theater, theater and speech, and, uh, and you know, my master's degree is in English. So it allowed me to take my background as a performer and a writer and develop a creative dissertation where I was able to use autoethnography, right? So that's the telling of my story grounded in, in research and theory about why things are the way they are. And then we can take that and decide how to change them. And then, you know, it also is a form of cultural mediation because it gives, it shines a light on issues that people maybe don't think about in the ways that we need them to think about uh, and, and has the capacity to then shift people's perspective. And then you couple that with live performance, right? So and what embodied performance is another research method that I chose to use because there's also research that suggests when we put a story on stage in front of an audience, the audience there's a there's an interaction that happens between the performer and the audience that allows space for empathy and allows space for dialogue to occur similar to like reading fiction right which we which also we know by from research is uh, a way that empathy gets built for people because you can put yourself in another person's shoes live performance does the same thing people leave the theater feeling changed in some way having witnessed the story and talk about that story right and and how it impacted them and then those conversations become kind of a ripple effect and and over time can ultimately change policy 
if enough people get to witness that story. So that was sort of my whole uh, impetus in, in thinking about what my dissertation was going to be and what it became was Unmothered. And the, the, the title of the show that w with the intentional hyphens was really was a very specific rhetorical choice. And I think it's important for me to explain that. I don't often explain it, but <laughs> so it's the, you know, the hyphens represent the disruptions in adoption, right? The disruption between the first mother and the adopted person or the first family and the adopted person and the disruption then between the adoptee and the adoptive parent, adoptive mother, adoptive family. Right? I didn't like know the, that. Wow. Yeah. And also the ways in which adoption makes first mothers unmothers mm. um, and the capital othered, the way that adoption others people, it others adoptees, it others first families, and it, 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 it even others adoptive parents and adoptive mothers, right? There's, because they're, they, are, they all are unmothers in a sense. So that, that you know, so the title is is actually like there's a whole story behind that, right? Right, and I knew there was like I knew I, I, I knew there was, and I couldn't wait for you to tell me. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so so I I performed it for the first time um, in March of 2020, <laughs> and I got super lucky because my last performance my last performance when I was working on my dissertation was March 15th of wow. 2020. And then March 16th, the world shut down. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm picturing March 2020 just as clear. Yeah. Where did and you perform it at? I performed it at the time I was living and teaching at a university in Utah. So I performed it twice in Salt Lake City and at a theater in Salt Lake City. And I performed it once on the campus of Utah Valley University where I was teaching at the time. Mm. And... And each of those three performances involved audience talkbacks as part of the process. And, you know, what, what those conversations brought up was really important, you know, and just really quickly, one particular story that stands out to me that I, that I included in, in my final chapter of my dissertation was there's one woman who was in the audience who had grown up with adopted siblings, and she said, Having seen this, I now understand why the dynamic in my family was the way that it was. I now understand what my siblings must have been going through and nobody knew. Mm. That's the kind of yeah. feedback you want to hear, isn't it? Yes. I mean, that's it, right? Like, that's, right. that's the whole reason for this. And so, so the original show was about an hour and a half long. I was supposed to perform it that fall, the fall of 2020 at the United Solo Festival in New York City. But of course it got canceled. Um, and so I waited another two years-ish to uh, feel safe enough, you know, with, with all the COVID restrictions to feel safe enough to travel again and to, and to do it. And so uh, Jeremy and I, and Jeremy um, helped me through, you know, with a rehearsal process we used Fitzmore's voice work, which is something that he is um, trained in, which is a trauma-informed voice and breath work that actors use um, that helps you connect the breath to the text and to regulate your nervous system. And so it's, it's actually a really helpful um, modality for, for a lot of things, <laughs> but it was really helpful in developing the staging of the show and the way that I told the story. And so we, you know, I resubmitted it to United Solo for the fall of 2022 and they accepted it. And, and then we kind of got back into the rehearsal process and I said, you know, it's been almost three years, I think, give it, you know, also we have a time limit. <laughs> we have to, we have to rethink some of the script. We have to look at the show and do some you know, do some cutting and do some reorganizing and God bless that man. Let me tell you, because it's so hard to look at a piece of work like that and, I, and, and figure out what to get rid of and what to keep, you know, because all of it 
to me is important, right? It's my story, it's my words, it's it's me being really vulnerable on the page and then ultimately on the stage. But I knew there was stuff that I didn't need. I knew there was stuff that could be cut. And he, you know, because we do have the the loving, trusting, supportive relationship that we have, I said, you know, like, please help me with this. And um, he did a brilliant job of making suggestions for how to reorganize and how to, you know, tell the story now three years later in in a much more compact way. So now the, now the show runs about an hour, which is excellent and really utilizes the poetry as the connective tissue for, mm. for the story. You know, we took it to United Solo in November and I won the award for best autobiographical show. So congratulations. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And so I'm super excited to keep putting it out in the world, you know, um, in this way, because I think people need to see it. People need to have the experience. And there's not a lot of people doing this kind of work. There's not a lot of people doing solo performance about adoptee experiences. There's a few people. Right. And I'm, you know, and I'm connected with them, but, but I feel really strongly that you know, I, if for as long as I can, I want to, I want to be the person who has, you know, who can use my voice because I do know that there are lots of us for many reasons who can't. And so if people find themselves in my story, then there's, there's healing there too. I, I know music city and myself, we just welcome you here when you bring it and, and, collaborate with Rebecca Autumn and that that weekend I just think it promises to be extraordinary for the adoption community and beyond so mm-hmm. I yeah I'm really looking forward to that and and I wanted to go back real quickly were you able to be in reunion with your paternal side yes that's a uh, <laughs> the challenging part of my my story is that I don't I don't know who my biological father is. Um, my first mom had gotten pregnant. I don't really know a lot of the story. She hasn't said much about it. And I've felt a little hesitant to ask because I, you know, she's been pretty forthcoming about so much else that I feel like there may be something there that she doesn't necessarily want to excavate at this point in time. She, did give me his name at one point. In fact, I have a little slip of paper in my wallet with his name on it. Um, I haven't done anything with it because he doesn't know that I exist. I think she tried to call him at one point and, you know, to tell him just a couple of years, you know, a year or so ago. And I don't think he ever got back to her. So I don't think that she was ever able to tell him. And so it's this weird space of like, this person doesn't know I exist. Also, I'm a radical feminist and, you know, I don't know what kind of person he might be. And I don't, you know, I've had a lot of disruptions in my life and I don't, I don't know that I'm particularly interested in opening up what could be a can of worms. Um, So understandable. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I um, normally ask a writer if they'd like to share with my audience something that's really special to them that they've written. So I want to extend that invitation to you, too. Is there anything you'd uh, like to read? Yes. Now I have to <laughs> pull out a, a notebook and find the thing. So... One of the, actually the first poem I ever wrote is called The Little Girl Inside of Me. And it's something that I talk about in my book. It's something that uh, comes up in Unmothered. And one of the writing activities that I did with a group of adoptees who I worked with, um, who were part of the catalyst for the book, was to, to revisit that poem and think about the little girl inside of us or the little boy or the little person, right? And write to them again. So 
I wrote again to the little girl inside of me. And so this is the little girl inside of me part two. The little girl inside of me is no longer afraid. She has grown up. She's capable. She is strong, resilient, and generous. Her sad eyes have grown wise, and her heart has learned to love more fully and completely, even when it feels overwhelming. She is learning to grieve and heal from a past that she didn't choose, a past that chose her and made her feel unworthy. She knows now that the world made mistakes she did not. She is living the aftermath of a family tragedy that no one knew was coming, so no one prepared. She is now prepared to let go of control over things that keep her stuck, to let go of people who refuse to see her, hear her, understand her. She needs to understand herself. She needs to care for her own well-being. She needs to protect the family she has chosen to make. She is no longer the little girl afraid to speak. She is a woman, and she is free. Wow, Liz, that was so good. And I think of uh, my inner child. I often have conversations and hang out with her and do the things she wants to do. And, yeah, the little girl inside of me is near and dear to me. So thank you for sharing that and reading it. Yeah, thank you for asking. So in closing, is there anything I didn't ask you that you'd like to share? Uh, I, I think the only thing I want to, because I've said a lot, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so grateful for, for the, the space to share stories and time and put myself in the world in a, in a new way with you. But I, 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 what I would love to just let people know is uh, if you are interested in having uh, a writing workshop or any kind of presentation of Unmothered or any of the things that I do, visit my website, lizdebetta.com and reach out to me and let's talk because I want to, I want to do as much healing as I can uh, with other people. So that means creating space for people to learn the tools of, of writing and sharing in community. And so if I can help cultivate that let me know. Fantastic. I will include uh, your very impressive website in the show notes and uh, a link to your book. It's available on Amazon and also Operation Fog Lift. So any, yes. yeah, anything else you want me to include, I will certainly do that. This has really been so good to talk with you and get to know you better and Thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with me. And thank you for inviting me. I'm so glad we had this time together, too. And now we're connected, and that's a beautiful thing. Right, and pretty soon we'll be in person, right? Yes, I can't <laughs> wait. I'm going to hug you. <laughs> First and foremost, I hope if the desire strikes you and you are able to join us here in Nashville on Saturday, August 5th, and or Sunday, August 6th, for Operation Foglift, we all look forward to meeting you in person. Check the show notes for the availability of tickets that you'll want to order online as soon as possible. Liz has helped many adoptees recognize their talent as a writer, and her name often gets mentioned to me as the person who gave them their sea legs, my words, to write and go on to publish their work. I can't say it enough that writing is a highly therapeutic tool that we all can utilize if we so choose to lean into healing from a wound. I encourage you to check out Liz's website, lizdebetta.com, where her upcoming events and announcements can be found. She offers workshops for healing and social change. And through words and movement, her one-woman play, Unmothered, is considered by United Solo Theater Festival 2022 is the best autobiographical show. In my observation, Liz has a full heart for people in a variety of ways. She is a former facilitator of Adoptees Connect in Salt Lake City, Utah, a Rudd Adoption Research Institute scholar, and spent six years teaching writing at Utah Valley University. She is currently the advocacy program manager at the Center for the Education of Women, at the University of Michigan. 
Her book, Adult Adoptees and Writing to Heal, Migrating Towards Wholeness, is available from Brill Publishers. Thank you, Liz, for having this conversation with me. I learned so much about you, the meaningful work you're doing, and how you are making a difference in our community. I'm excited about next month when you come visit the city I call home. I've met Rebecca Autumn in person this year, and now it's time for me to meet you face-to-face. I want to thank every guest for saying yes to a conversation with me. Every participant, especially in the early days, and the audience for listening to some of the most extraordinary people I've had the pleasure of meeting. This endeavor has positively exceeded my every expectation, and it wouldn't have been possible without your gifts and time. If you're an adoptee and would like to share your adoption journey, visit jenniferdianegoston.com. If you like Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow and or give, hopefully, a five-star rating so others can find it too. During the course of your day, I trust you will tell at least one friend or someone who you believe might find value in it because word of mouth is still the very best way for the show to grow. If you seek to be an ally of the adoption community, I hope you will consider making a monthly donation of at least $5 or a one-time amount that works for you at patreon.com forward slash land. Thank you for being here. Thank you.